You can be seated. This morning we'll be in 2 Kings 17. This will be the last chapter that deals with the northern kingdom of Israel as they're carried off into exile, as we'll see in just a moment. I appreciate the prayers from many of you in the last week. A number of you said, I didn't know you were having surgery on Thursday. I didn't know I was having surgery on Thursday either. So you were as surprised as I was. Went to the doctor on Wednesday, and they rushed me in on Thursday. I had some uh, problems with nerve, but they tell me it went well, and Lord willing, it did go well. So I appreciate your prayers, and uh, if I'm a little off this morning, I'll ask your uh, mercy for me there as well. But we're in 2 Kings 17 this morning, and before we read that together, let's pray. God, you are God, and there is no other. There is no other who is worthy of our worship. There is no thing which is worthy of our worship. You alone are glorious. You alone are to be praised. And we we ask that we would get that very clearly out of this passage here today, that you are glorious and you are worthy and those who recognize that are those also who have worth as we belong to you, the worthy one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 17, starting in the first verse. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, son of Elah, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up to attack Hosea, who had been Shalmaneser's vassal, and had paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria discovered that Hosea was a traitor, for he had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt. And he no longer paid tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, Shalmaneser seized him and put him in prison. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria, and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Hala in Gozan on the Habor River and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every place they burned incense, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, You shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, and were as stiff-necked as their fathers, who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols, cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshipped Baal. 
They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all his servants the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. When they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord, so he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria... Do not know what the God of that country requires. He has sent lions among them which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. And the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, Each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. The men from Babylon made Sukkoth-Banoth, the men from Kutha made Nurgle, and the men from Hamath made Ashima, the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartok, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire as sacrifices to Adremelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. They worshipped the Lord, but they also They also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. To this day, they persist in their former practices. They neither worshipped the Lord nor adhered to the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, Do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship. To him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifice. You must always be careful to keep the decrees and ordinances, the laws and commands he wrote for you. Do not worship other gods. Do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods. Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. We had a a bonfire in my backyard last Sunday night with the youth group and as I like to do, I kind of peppered the, the kids with different questions, the sponsors as well. And some of the questions I asked were, well, if you could have a 30-minute conversation with any person from the New Testament who wasn't divine, you can't have a conversation with Jesus, you can have a conversation with any person from the New Testament, who would it be? 
Same question for the Old Testament. Another question that I asked was, if you could observe any event from the Old Testament, if you could be there for any of the events of the Old Testament, what would you most like to see? And there were some, there were some good answers. And one of the answers was, I would like to see the parting of the Red Sea, and I would like to see the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, now wouldn't that be a sight to see? Right, you see the sea parting. You see the Israelites crossing on the dry ground. You see the, the pillar of fire that, that lights the way for the Israelites and keeps the Egyptians at bay. And then you see the sea come together, crashing and swallow up all of Pharaoh's army. That would be a sight to see. And as we come into the passage before us in 2 Kings 17, it's good for us to remember that this is the nation of Israel, the same nation of Israel which is descended from those who walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. These are God's people. These are God's chosen people. These are the descendants of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Joseph. These are God's people. This is a special people, but as we come into the chapter, we see that they're not really special any longer. Israel is a goner. You come into the first six verses or so and the last king comes to the throne. The last king is King Hosea. Surprisingly, he's not as bad as all the rest of the kings, the narrator says, but it doesn't matter. Israel has been too rebellious and too idolatrous and for too long, and so the Lord will, will not defend them anymore. There's no more Elijahs, there's no more Elishas, no more Jehus, no more Jeroboam the seconds, no more chances. The Israelites will not have a savior this time. This time they will be left to their own devices. In fact, the only person who looms large in the passage in front of us this morning is the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser. You start in verse 3 and you go through the next four verses and we see that Shalmaneser is referred to eight times in four verses, either by his name, by his title, or by a pronoun. Shalmaneser is the king of Assyria. He's the only one who is present here in force and if the only one who is present in force is the king of Assyria and not God, the Lord of Israel, then the Israelites are most definitely in trouble. So the king of Assyria comes and it's curtains for Israel. First he captures Hosea the king, then he captures Samaria the capital city, and then he takes all the Israelites and he ships them off into other parts of his empire and brings other people, other captured peoples, and resettles them in Samaria. And this is such a sad happening. This is the promised land. This is the land that when Abraham had gone on his journey, the Lord had said, I will give this land to your offspring. This is the land which was conquered by Joseph. This is the land that the Israelites had longed to go into. But now the land is emptied of Abraham's children because Abraham's children were empty of love for Abraham's God. And so they find themselves carted off to a foreign land. And this really shouldn't be a surprise to us. We could say we've seen this coming a mile away or maybe we've seen this coming a, a thousand miles away. As you move on into the next series of verses, verses 7 to 23, we, we see a catalog of sins. Sins for which Israel has has now been destroyed. Now, the Lord had long promised that exactly this was going to happen. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 14, 
we, we see in 1 Kings the, the account of Solomon, the great king, until Solomon wasn't so great any longer. And then Solomon's son Rehoboam becomes king, and Rehoboam was a fool. And Rehoboam, because of his foolishness, causes the northern tribes to decide they want to have their own nation. And so they rebel against Rehoboam, and they successfully rebel, and they make Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, their king. And Jeroboam, who's mentioned here in this passage a number of times, Jeroboam has an opportunity. He can either worship the Lord or he can worship idols. And so he chooses to worship idols. He sets up golden calves, one in the north at Dan and one in the south at Bethel. And he says, these behold your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then the prophet Ahijah comes to Jeroboam's wife with a, a twofold prophecy. One, a judgment upon Jeroboam, and then second, a judgment upon Jeroboam's nation. You find this in 1 Kings 14, 14 to 16. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth, the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers, scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their ashram, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. And you can go back even farther than just to Jeroboam. You can go back all the way to Moses. When Moses writes Deuteronomy, there are, there are promises of blessings for obedience to God, and there are promises of curses for disobedience. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28, we read just a couple verses, verses 15 and 36. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring you and your kingdom, whom you, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. The Lord was patient. He waited 200 years from the time that Jeroboam was king to bring this consequence upon the people. He waited hundreds of more years from the time of Moses. He was patient with Israel's on-again, off-again relationship, infatuation with idols, and far more on than off. But now the time has come. Now there's, there's no more patience. All these sins have accumulated to the point where God is finished with Israel. And it is quite the list of sins, isn't it? If you look just at those verses, verses 7 to 23, you see sin after sin after sin after sin listed. I, I tried to pull them out. I think I, maybe I got them all, but I might, I might not have gotten them all. Just consider this list with me. They worshipped other gods. They worshipped like the pagans. Their kings worshipped like the pagans. Their kings introduced other gods, pagan gods. They did secret disgusting things. That seems kind of like a catch-all, doesn't it? They did secret disgusting things. That can capture any, any number of hundreds of different sins. They put up idols everywhere they could. The scripture says they put them from watchtower to fortified cities. Watchtowers are built in the desert. They were built in the desert where nobody else wanted to live so that no foreign army could come marching through without being detected. So even out in the middle of nowhere, they put up their idols. They participated in fertility cults and sorcery. They disobeyed and persecuted the prophets. They broke God's covenant. They acted just like all the worthless nations before them and around them. 
They broke all the commands of God. They attributed God's actions of salvation to golden bulls. They worshiped stars, and they sacrificed their children in the fire to idols. That's quite the list, isn't it? If you go back to verse 7, if you go back to verse 7, the Lord wants us to get a very clear understanding of what has happened. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, when we come to verse 7, when we come to verse 7, things are laid out as plainly as possible for us. Why is it that Israel has been carted off into exile in Assyria? The Assyrians were particularly brutal people. I'm not going to go into all the disgusting details, but the Assyrians were a brutal people. Why has this happened, right? You can imagine an Israelite saying, Oh, how could God let this happen? How could God allow such a terrible thing to happen to us? And the, the Scripture, though, will not allow us to come up with some excuse. Why has this happened? This has happened because of idolatry. There's no question of where is God. God is right here. God is doing exactly what He said He was going to do. He is allowing Israel to lie in the bed which He has made. God is right here, right here in judgment. Time and time again, the Lord had put guardrails to keep Israel from careening off the cliff that she seemed intent on going off. Of. Now finally, no more guardrails. And Israel is very happy to go off the cliff. Now, I'm, I'm not a coroner, of course. I'm not very familiar with the work of coroners. But I know a little bit about what a coroner does. A coroner is called in when someone has died. And they, they declare, they officially declare the person to be dead. And they write a, a time of death and a cause of death. Cause of death, heart failure, cause of death, whatever it may be. And if we were going to be the historical coroner for Israel, and just think of it from a a historical perspective, you might say, a cause of death, Assyria. But Assyria isn't the cause of death for Israel. Idolatry is the cause of death for Israel. Assyria is just a symptom. Israel had left the Lord behind time and time and time again, century after century, and so finally the Lord allows them to go down the path of destruction to its logical end. They have become a worthless people. That point comes out to us in verse 15. It's very startling. It says, They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. It's a startling, it's a startling thing to hear. And the point is very simple. We become like what we worship. If we worship worldly things, we become worldly. And the things of this world will be shown in time to be worthless. And if we worship God, we become godly. We will become like what we worshipped. And so they worshipped worthless idols. And they themselves became worthless. And we, we read again and again across the course of the passage, so he removed them from his presence. There is no place for worthless people in the presence of God. That may seem particularly harsh. And perhaps it is, in some sense, harsh, but it is precisely what the Scripture teaches here. A, a person who will not worship God does not do what they were made to do. We were made to worship God. 
We were made to, to see the glory of God. We were made to appreciate the glory of God. We were made to call back to God how glorious He is. God tells us how glorious He is in the creation. He tells us how glorious He is in His Word. And it belongs to us to give back praise to God for how glorious He is. We were made to worship. And if we do not worship, then we are just like a glass that doesn't hold water or a car that doesn't drive or an elbow that doesn't bend. It's not very good. It's not worth it. It's not worth anything. And what do we do with worthless things but we discard them? We set them aside. They're no longer good for anything. And that's precisely what the Lord has done with Israel. They worshipped worthless idols, became worthless, and were discarded like worthless things. In verses 24 to 41, they tell the rest of this sad tale. This land was the land flowing with milk and honey, Abraham's promised land, the land conquered by Joshua, the land that was supposed to be the home for God's people. And now God's people are out, and these pagans are in. The land becomes full of Syrians and Assyrians and Babylonians and Medes and all other kinds of people. And this is what the Assyrians did. And this, is, this is well-known history. The Assyrians were kind of bright. They wanted to have an empire. They didn't want to have any problems in that empire. So when they captured an area, they'd take the people out, at least most of them, and they'd move them somewhere else. They'd take other people and they'd move them in. And that way, all these different communities would be living next to each other, but they didn't speak the same language. They didn't worship the same gods. They didn't have the same culture. It's very difficult to rebel against a, a foreign king if you don't speak the same language or worship the same gods or have the same culture. So the Israelites go out, and all these pagan peoples come in, and the Israelites are gone for good. But then we have this rather strange account, it almost seems out of place, of lions. The lions enter the scene. The, the people get resettled into the land of, of Israel and then the Lord sends lions to them. And the, 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 the main point is that God's people are gone, but God is not gone. You cannot, you cannot get rid of God simply by getting rid of some of his people. And the Lord sends these wild beasts on the pagan inhabitants of his land, and they think, well, the God of this land must be upset with us. So they send off to the king, and the king sends them a priest, and the priest begins to tell them about how to worship the Lord. That seems good, except they don't get the whole picture. Only the Lord is to be worshipped. He's not just to be worshipped, he's only to be worshipped. And so they create kind of this smorgasbord, a buffet of of religious worship. There's idols this and idols this. You can pick and choose whichever ones you want. And so they become what we call syncretists. They, they take all different kinds of religions and they, they synchronize them into one religion. So they worship the God of Israel, but not only the God of Israel. And so these people who were intermarried all together and had all these religious practices were, that which were confused, they became known as the Samaritans same Samaritans that we run into in the ministry of Jesus and in the book of Acts. This is what becomes of the promised land. We go on to the very last verse in the chapter. To this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their fathers did. Nothing changes. For Israel, nothing ever changes. Israel was gone and she was never, ever coming home. Because Israel decided to stick with her idols all the way up to the bitter end. 
God was patient. God was more than patient. He had saved Israel more than they deserved to be saved. He had shown more grace than they deserved to have. But finally, the, the patience is done. And Israel is dead and gone and judged and never coming home. And it shouldn't be too difficult for us to draw a straight line from Israel to our own day. From Israel to ourselves. Israel had received very good news, good news of God's salvation. Israel had received the good news that their God was the saving God who was even more powerful than the pharaohs of Egypt. That he, that he had rescued his people, that his people had been in bondage in Egypt for 400 years, but the Lord was victorious over Pharaoh, had parted the Red Sea, had led them out, had allowed them to conquer nations of giants in the promised land, that theirs was the saving God. They had heard this news, then they remembered this news in things like the Passover and other sacrifices, and then they were given a law, which we read earlier, that was given to them that they might live in light of the grace which God had shown to them in thanksgiving to God. We've received good news as well, haven't we? Much better news than they received. They received the news of walking through a sea. We've, re we've received the news of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's our good news. And it's great, glorious good news. And we remember this good news. We remember the good news in the Lord's Supper and in baptism. We have holy days to remind us that Jesus came in the flesh, that He was crucified, that He rose again from the dead. And we too have been instructed never to forget. And not to ever live as though we have forgotten the Israelites forgot but the author of Hebrews says you better not forget you go to Hebrews 12 verse 25 and the author of Hebrews says this see that you do not refuse him who is speaking I'll explain the hymns and the days in just a moment see that you do not refuse him who is speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The they, the they is Israel. The author of Hebrews is making a direct connection between the church and Israel. The they is Israel, and the one from earth who warned them is Moses. And we are warned not by Moses, but we are warned by Jesus himself who warns from heaven. Jesus most definitely warns from heaven. He says that it is the one who perseveres to the end who will be saved. You go to Revelation 22, we read, Nothing unclean will ever enter the city of God, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Israel's great problem was that she didn't persevere. That she became detestable and unclean and false. And the author of Hebrews tells us that we ought not to do the same thing that she did. If you look and you go back through 2 Kings chapter 17, there is that big, long, ugly list of sins that seems to go on and on and on and on and on. I wonder if our lists would read any differently from there. You see, one day the list gets read. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But you go to the Paul's letter, his second letter to the Corinthians 5, verse 10. Paul says this, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We read more than that, perhaps, in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 13. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Isn't that a terrifying thought? That one day your own Second Kings 17, which has already been written, will one day be read as well. You know, the prophets warned Israel again and again and again. They warned them that this day was coming. But they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. And they wouldn't listen for so many generations and for so long that finally the time was up. And the really grand, glorious good news of reading this passage today is that we we hear the opportunity to repent before our time is up. For them, the time is up, but for us, the time is not yet up. There's still time to repent. There's still time to come running to Christ, to throw ourselves to the Savior's feet and say, I will leave behind every idol to have you. You know, all it would have taken, you know this, right? All it would have taken for Israel to be saved is for Israel to come to the Lord and say, we have, we have sinned, we confess, we are sorry, we desire to be your people. Which of us can think even for a moment that if they had humbled themselves before God, they would not have reached salvation. They most certainly would have been saved, and so will you. The fate of the Israelites need not be our fate. They could have come to the saving God for salvation. And in fact, some of them over time would. There are, there are such precious few stories of Jesus from his infancy and from his young age, at least reliable stories. There are all kinds of fake stories. But there are very few reliable stories of Jesus' infancy. But one of them is in Luke chapter 2. And it's right after Jesus has been born. You have all the things with Jesus being born. And then Jesus' parents bring him to the temple to present a, a sacrifice for their firstborn son. And when they come into the temple, they, they meet these two people, very holy people, a, a prophet Simeon and a prophetess Anna. And they meet this prophetess Anna, but more is told of us, more is told of her to us than just that she's a prophetess and just her name. We, we read this, and there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. The tribe of Asher. That's one of the, 12, that's one of the ten tribes. That's one of the tribes that gets carted off into exile in Assyria. That's not a Jew. That's an Israelite. But somehow, by God's grace, her family and her made their way back to the land of Israel. And when she comes to this little child, she recognizes that he is the Savior. And she finds salvation in Abraham's God, who comes in the flesh. She, an Israelite, has the humility and the wisdom to do what her forefathers refused to do. She came to the saving God 
for salvation. That's where we find salvation too, isn't it? We find salvation in the God who saves. Not in all the idols that we can make. Not in all the false gods that we can conjure up in our own hearts and our own minds. We find salvation only in Israel's God, only in Christ. You know, the consequence, the consequence for the Israelites of being of being idolatrous was they were expelled from the presence of God and never brought back in. But that need not be the fate that awaits us. Because those who come to God in humility through faith in Christ are allowed to live in His presence forever. The Lord says this in Revelation, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. The one who conquers. The one who perseveres to the end. The one who loves God all the way up to the very end. That one has God as his father. And he is God's son. So it leaves us with a, a very simple application is that we have a, a simple question. What, what do you want? Do you want to have your idols right up to the very bitter end and squeeze every ounce of false joy out of them, never letting go? Or do you want to get rid of the idols, cling to God, have Christ, and be in God's presence forever? Israel foolishly chose the first option. It would seem wise for each of us to joyfully choose the second. Choose Christ. Even today. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many sobering passages. So many sobering passages, whether it be in Genesis or Exodus or Kings or Revelation. So many messages with such clear warnings not to be like Israel, not to be like those who fall away, not to be like the fools that cling to the idols, but instead to cling to Christ, to come to Christ like the prophetess Anna, to come to Christ like Paul when he was called, to come to Christ in faith. to come recognizing that there is no value in any idols. To come instead to find salvation in the only Savior. And we know, and we know that Christ is the perfect Savior. We know that He is the one who has made a perfect sacrifice. Who is of ultimate worth and therefore able to save all who come to Him in faith. And so we pray that even today, those of us who do not believe would believe and come in faith. And those of us who do believe would heed the warning given in the book of Hebrews not to fall away, but to heed the warning, to heed the warning from the One who speaks from heaven. 
We pray, Lord, that by your grace and the very strength you give to us, that you would cause us to persevere to the end and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.